Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. Later on in the show, we've got a massive show. College football is starting this weekend. AP Top 25 came out. It is a lightning rod, as always. Later on in the show, Ralph Russo, who is the college football writer for the AP, hosts the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast um, at Ralph D. Russo AP on Twitter. Listen, he knows everything about the Top 25, so it's the perfect week to have him on, talk about the lightning rod that is the Top 25, Clemson atop the Top 25, how you use the Top 25 when you're thinking about betting, uh, areas of softness in the Top 25 that could be of value to betters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's coming on later in the show, but first, because it's NFL season, we're going to get the bookmaker to the world from the Orleans, representing all the Boyd Gaming books around the country, Mr. Bob Scucci. That's the highlight of your day, Scooch. It is. It doesn't get much better than that. Oh my God, it's so good. We are at a pivotal time in the NFL preseason. Do you know why? Why is that? Week three. Week three of the NFL preseason. Do you agree with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, am, I, am I you know, yelling into the wind? Am I tilting at windmills? Do you well, have an opinion? I don't know if you have the same perspective as, as me, but, but week three is the week that you're going to see probably – the most time from a lot of the uh, uh, first team players, the people, the, the skilled players, the people, that, the players that people recognize. Uh, week four, they they rest them. Week one and two, you don't see them. So uh, I, I do think this will be kind of the most exposure uh, that you'll get to some of the key players. All right. So I agree. I appreciate you answering that because at first it sounded like. You either weren't listening or <laughs> didn't understand what I was saying, didn't agree with me. I wasn't quite sure. Sometimes I didn't know, you know, I didn't know if you were going that direction. So, I, you know, what, when I, I honest to God, Scooch. Yeah. It's the NFL preseason. It's week three. What other possible direction could I be going? <laughs> I don't know. You're an unpredictable guy. I am. I'm an enigma. Yeah. Anyways. How do you manage week three as a bookmaker? We've got basically every game going on on Thursday. Like almost every team is in action on Thursday. It's going to, yeah. and I can't tell you, and, and I'd like to get your perspective on this. For us at the Action Network, download the free Action Network app, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts. Um, check out our fantasy tools. I feel like we've been seeing a ridiculous amount of traffic and subs against NFL preseason betting guides individual game guides, all this kind of stuff. Like I have been floored by the level of interest in preseason betting. Are you seeing that reflected in the community at large in Las Vegas and around the country where Boyd Gaming has operators? Oh, absolutely. Um, way more betting than in previous years. And I don't know if it's because there's, you know, it's opened up in other jurisdictions and there's a lot of new operators and more markets to bet on. But, uh, you know, being able to book a first half and first half total on preseason games on every game, I know it sounds kind of academic, but, you know, it wasn't too many years ago that not every operator offered, 
you know, in-game wagering and first half and second half wagering on preseason games. Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's as pop more popular now than it ever was. Doesn't make it harder from a bookmaker standpoint, absolutely, because it's just more more you need to keep track of. Um, you know, and I think key with preseason, obviously, is who's playing and for how long. And it changes. It changes right up until game time and you know and it's how much you trust um your sources and how much you trust what's coming out of the kind of the uh, coaching staff's narrative in terms of you know we want to get this guy a full quarter of play and then it turns out you're only seeing you know one series of downs uh which doesn't come close to that quarter of play and so our odds are based on what we know and of course we adjust them with kind of the, the money coming in which might be you know, probably a more accurate uh, uh, depiction of, of what's actually going to happen on the field. You said the magic word. Do you know what it is? Nope. You have no idea what I'm going to ask you to <laughs> elaborate on. No. Can't predict you. That's true. As we've, as we've made clear, I'm an enigma. You said sources. Explain that yeah. to me. Well, I mean, we have a, a variety of sources that, that we we use in the industry, and it could be something as simple as just, you know, following uh, people's Twitter feeds, uh, and, and it could be uh, you know, more, our more experienced handicappers who, who have kind of a network of people that uh, kind of delve into everything that's said from, from all the coaching steps. So you're not meaning like, you're on the phone with coaches and no. or people close to the organization and you're able to say, well, I got, I got word that Jimmy Garoppolo is only going to be playing a series and not a full quarter in the third preseason game of the year. So I'm going to power rate the 49ers differently. No, I, you know, I'm not going to say that there's any inside knowledge that, you know, the, the, the bookmakers have that the betting public doesn't have. I just think that, the bookmakers probably have a more extensive network of of public sources and know where to kind of extract those that information that maybe the public just doesn't quite have the resources at hand. But it's all public. None of it is just kind of information that we have that the public doesn't. All right. So the first game of the year, uh, I forgot who 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 even played it. Right? It was the Falcons and the Broncos, and. There was a ton of conversation around betting, and I think it sort of, you know, it, it presaged what we were going to see during the preseason here in the amount of activity. And um, I was in the Broncos. I won that game. They covered by four. I think the line was two and a half. Miracle cover, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was some prominent people who were like, why would you bet on the preseason? That's crazy. And they got shouted down because of sort of people saying betting is a regular thing get over it you sound like you know get off my lawn old man um but do you think betting on the preseason is crazy no no I, but i will say that again on the same concept that, that is becoming more mainstream i think preseason in a lot of prior years was mainly limit it to the sharpest of betters. They would focus on a lot of angles that maybe we didn't have as odds makers. And the general public, you know, if it was the Hall of Fame game or if it was going to be a, a game 
televised in their local region and they wanted to see their local team, they would bet on it. But it, it wasn't to the extent that it is now where, where people are just really, even if there, there's players that they don't know any of the rosters, uh, they still have an interest on, on betting on a lot of these teams. And they're starting to read a little bit more about betting angles, about certain coaches who have a, uh, kind of a, um, a history of, of winning in preseason versus other coaches that uh, kind of are just looking at players uh, and don't necessarily have the final score in mind. They're looking at you know what, what we need to work on and who I want to take a look at here in certain situations. So I, I think there's angles that people are starting to kind of gravitate to that they didn't really know of before, and that makes it more fun and interesting uh, to, to bet on something, especially when you feel like you have a little bit of knowledge or an angle. Yeah, but the flip side is it is excruciating, right, in a different way because let's say you had the total on the Broncos Niners last night on the Monday night game that ended week two. The game in the first quarter was 3 nothing. The game yeah. through the first half was nine points. The total was 40. It ended at 39. Yeah, no, it's a roller coaster ride, and just because you feel like you have an angle on something doesn't, you know, necessarily mean it's gonna it's gonna pan out that way. Um, you know, I, I think uh, kind of a, an, an indication of that the the other night was uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and, and the Kansas City Chiefs, and um, I, I think uh, I think a lot of people got a little little burned on some messaging there that uh, they were going to see kind of a First team, uh, uh, most of the most of the first half that you know they really they really didn't get. Uh, uh, Kansas City was actually sorry, it, it, Kansas City was supposed to play most of their first team. At least that was the uh, the word out there that they were going to play most of the first half. And I think you saw the point spread minus four and a half in the first half when the uh, the, the the line for the game was minus three. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what you're going to see in a lot of these numbers in preseason. If you know that Aaron Rodgers is going to be playing most of the first half, uh, you're going to see a, a, a first-half line that, that is going to be higher than the game line. And, uh, but, again, it doesn't always, doesn't always pan out that way. But that might be your advice for people who are looking for advantages in Week 3, which we're coming up on this week and a lot of games on Thursday. Uh, you got to really – glean what the coaches are saying so you can get a sense of who's actually playing because that's where you're going to get the truest opportunity after those first teams are out like you are it's anyone's game it's, yeah. it, you are in it's, a free fall you are it's it's, it's almost yeah. like you're playing roulette exactly no it, it's a coin flip you don't know what what's going to happen you don't know who these players are and 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 how they're going to how they're going to react and it's it is it's a coin flip and that's why i i think Focusing on on first half now is kind of an angle that uh, a lot of professional betters are kind of going towards because it's kind of a more accurate reflection. Um, and I'll use, you know, I'm going to make a baseball analogy here for for preseason NFL football. In baseball, the first five innings, betting on the first five innings has become really popular in the last five years, and professional betters have really found an edge there 
because it takes the bullpen out of the equation. It takes those last three innings out of the equation. You're looking at those starting pitchers who, who go five, six solid innings. You look at their ERAs. It's pretty uh, consistent. And you've removed a whole unknown out of your kind of betting uh, uh, handicapping. And that's kind of what is going on with NFL preseason. You remove that second half. You remove that intangible and focus on what you know more of with those starters. Well, speaking of first five, I've got the uh, Angels Rangers first five over six playing right now. Uh, Angels scored three in the first. Uh, It's the top of the second. Uh, I'm feeling really good about it, according to the Action Network app. Um, I have a very good chance of winning. I'm showing green dots, which means I got, uh, I'm potentially in the money right now. That's what it's telling me. Bob Scucci, you are the bookmaker of the world, and you're going to have to make way for Ralph Russo, who uh, is the premier AP Top 25 writer. I guess he's the only writer covering the AP Top 25 for the AP. But still, he's an expert, and he's going to come on the podcast next. Sounds exciting. I'll step aside. Yeah, step aside. Step aside from your podcast, Scooch. All right. Talk to you later. All right, bye. All right, next up on The Favorites, as promised, this guy has been doing Top 25 for AP for a very long time. Knows everything there is to know about the Top 25 for college football. So it's the right week to have him on since we got a brand new top 25, which some people would say is disastrous. Other people would say is <laughs> erroneous. Other people would say is useless. I would say it's the best way to talk about college football. Ralph Russo of the AP at Ralph D. Russo AP on Twitter. He is the host of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Ralph Russo, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you, Chad? What's going on, man? I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you. You like it? You're like a top 25 legend. Um, and so this is the week <laughs> to do means, it. That just means I'm old, man. That just means I'm getting old. <laughs> well, it happens to all of us. It happens to me. I, every day I got people like saying to me, this is going to sound like a humble brag. Oh, my God, I've been listening to your podcast forever. I want to be like, fuck you, man. <laughs> um. But you've been covering the top 25 for a long time. You are sort of, uh, you know, you're the foremost expert. So now we got Clemson, top 25. Mm-hmm. Number one. First time, I think, since Georgia was the first time number one in what, 2008? Was that what it was? I believe it was 2008 Georgia was there at the start of the season, not for very long. But, uh, but yeah, that's the last time because, you know, this, the number one thing doesn't spread around all that much. There's not a ton of parity in college football. So Clemson became the 23rd team to, to hold the preseason, the preseason number one, that is. All right. So as we are talking about the top 25 this week, it comes out and there's a lot of debate. It's like the original debate topic. Um, what are your thoughts on the top 25 as a ranker, as a statement, as a judgment of value and quality in college football? Yeah, well, first of all, very, very have to put this very clear. I don't vote. The AP, we pick the voters, we count it up, we, we administer the poll, but employees for the AP don't vote. So I kind of look at it like a lot of fans and reporter, other reporters do. I, I sometimes look at it and go, ah, don't really like that that what that team is there 
Um, I would put this team higher. I would put this team lower. I guess my, the difference between me and most fans is I don't get particularly angry about it. I sort of understand that there's there's a lot of different ways you can rank these teams. It's all sort of subjective. We're doing the best we can just to make an educated guess here. So again, I, I don't I, where I might disagree. The difference with me is I sort of can see the both see see both sides. I sort of I've been around voters and seen the votes long enough that I could sort of, even if somebody's got like quote unquote an unusual vote, I can usually sort of see where they're coming from. And I would also always tell people like, listen, like a, we don't want everybody to vote the same. That would be boring. Um, and if people vote really outside the box, that's kind of fun. I mean, that's kind of, as long as, you know, as long as you can justify your vote, that's kind of the fun thing. Uh, I think a lot of people look at the poll these days and, I, I, my people always ask me, are you surprised as anything in the, in the rankings? And generally speaking, I think because nowadays we've evolved to the place where we have all these way too early polls, right? That we start ranking these teams, not the AP, but these teams start getting ranked January 15th by some news organizations. And I think because of that, we end up with, six or seven months of rankings leading into the preseason ranking. So I think it lends itself to a little bit of groupthink. And I don't know if that's not a knock on the voters, but I think if you've been seeing these early polls for six or seven months, I think you end up with a consensus on what the teams should, about what the team should look like going into the season. So a couple of things. Number one, every time you say, because you sound so New York, <laughs> well, I grew up in Queens, so. <laughs> how does a guy from Queens, and this is a little bit of a sidetrack, how does a guy from Queens end up being someone who is one of the faces of college football coverage, a place, New York City, that is so disconnected from college football? Yeah, that's a good question. I have, uh, when I was young, and I, and I said grew up in Queens and had, my father didn't give much care about college football. You know, he raised me a Mets fan and a Jets fan. Um, I just was sort of drawn in by Saturday football, you know, uh, you know, seeing these games from sort of weird places, you know, when you grow up in Queens, like Baton Rouge might as well be the moot, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska, like, what is that about, you know, Norman, Oklahoma. So like, it just, the football looked different. The players had the tearaway jerseys. And obviously they're playing lots of different styles. You know, I grew up in, I was 10 years old in 1980, right? So the NFL is already becoming sort of homogenous. Everybody sort of looks the same. But, you know, college teams are playing lots of different offenses. So I got hooked in my, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old, that Nebraska team in 1983, I think it was, or 82, that lost to Miami in that amazing Orange Bowl just really gripped me and it just stuck. Like I just, I just, I, I, the more I dove into the sport, the more I liked it. And then to wrap up the long story, when I moved one of my, as an adult, I I moved to Mississippi to work there for the AP. And once you get that, that taste of SEC football, it just took it to another level. And at that point I realized this is the sport. If I can pick one sport, I love them all. But if I can pick one, to be near and to sort of immerse myself in, it would be college football. So you mentioned three things there. Uh, one, 
Jamel Holloway, Mike Rozier, those Oklahoma and Nebraska games in the early oh, 80s so yeah. defined college football. But also, by the way, defined a little bit of polling because that was the era when the polls seemed to have more influence than they ever had, right? Because they were still the way in which college football champions were somewhat being defined. No, no doubt. I mean, they, the, the, the coaches poll and the AP poll were basically the definitive word on college football at the end of the year as far as who we thought of as champions. Now, that obviously has changed. And I'll tell you something. As someone, again, who, you know, the poll is a big part of what I do. It's, a, it's, it's part of my brand. It's part of the reason why I have a good job. So I definitely don't knock the poll. But there's no doubt that the relevancy of the poll has changed and probably lessened to a certain degree as the BCS came around and now the college football playoff. But what I'll always tell people is the poll is the one consistent thing throughout the history of college football because we have the CFP now and we had the BCS before and we had the Alliance before that and before that it was a bit of a free-for-all. And you know what? In five or six years, we're probably going to have a new playoff system or a different type of playoff system. The poll is a constant. So the poll is one way to sort of tell the tale of college football, to sort of look back and say, uh, when was the last time this team was this good? Well, they were number one, uh, you know, so-and-so was last number one in 1985, right? And it's been that long since they were number one. So I think the poll sort of is, is a good way to quantify things in college football, because it's the only consistent throughout years and years and years of college football. And that's why I still think it's relevant. And that's why I still think the preseason poll is relevant and a good thing because it's just, it's part of the fabric of college football and it helps sort of build a narrative to each season and to its history. So two of the two, I said, you mentioned three things and the other two of the things I'll mention are, and you don't have to comment on this. I just recollecting you said, Mississippi, uh, a close friend of mine lives in Oxford. He works at ESPN. I went down to visit him for a weekend in Oxford for a game, and walking through the Grove is maybe a top 10 sports experience. But the number one, and my wife and I were away this weekend, and we were sitting at the bar of this hotel we were staying at, and this other couple sat down next to us, and you know, as it were, you start talking and hanging out, and they asked me after they learned sort of what I did for a living, like my favorite sporting events, and I said, the greatest sporting event I've ever been to, you mentioned Baton Rouge, LSU, Alabama, in Death Valley, 2012, when uh, LSU was, I think, number five, Bama was number one, and I think TJ Yeldon, AJ McCarron, like that yep. team, and TJ Yeldon had like some 25-yard run to win the game in the final seconds. Um, easily the greatest football experience in my life. The yeah, I mean the the Southern football experience in those stadiums. Baton Rouge was one of the first because as great as Oxford is and Mississippi State, and I covered those. The one that you know, this the one stadium that I the first time I was in it, it totally blew me away. Was Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge? I covered a game down there in the early two thousands that went to overtime. Mississippi State had a big lead, and LSU came rumbling back. And I had never worked in that stadium, never been in that stadium. And the stadium, the press box starts sort of shaking yeah. because because it's so loud in there. It, uh, it was a, an amazing experience. And again, once you go down, if you like college football and you get a taste of that, 
you know, that SEC. And the other thing that also happened with me, my brother moved to Columbus in the 90s, Columbus, Ohio. So I got a taste of that, of, of what it's like to be in Columbus on a Michigan, Ohio State weekend. And, and again, when you get those that experience and understand the pageantry of it, it's it just gets in your blood. I, you know, again, like, I, you know, the football may be better on Sundays, but the event is far better on Saturday. Uh, yeah, to- totally agree. Completely agree. Um, all right. AP Top 25. How do you think about it as a barometer? This is a betting podcast. As a barometer mm-hmm. for people who gamble. Is it, well, let me just, let me ask it without any valence. How do you think about it as a barometer for people who gamble? Yeah, I, I, I would be cautious of using it as a barometer for gamblers. I, I think that, you know, again, this is not a knock on the poll. The poll rewards results, right? Bare minimum results, wins and losses. Not how you won that game. Not necessarily, you know, maybe a little. I, I shouldn't say that. There's a little bit of, hey, you maybe had a close loss, we'll ding you here. Hey, or excuse me, a, a close loss, so we'll give you a little credit for that. You had a weird, uh, you had a close win against a bad team, so we'll ding you for that a little bit. But it's purely sort of, you know, wins and loss results driven. Whereas, you know, as someone who's got a little bit of an analytical bent to myself, and I'll, I'll check in on the FPIs and the S- S&P pluses and all those things. I love those, the computer rankings. I'm sort of a money ball guy when it comes to baseball. Like, you, I understand that, like, that a pure win and loss is not necessarily predictive for the next win and loss. It's more of like how, how you played and things along those lines. And there's all kinds of things that go into the results of a game that may be more predictive than, a, than the poll, which is solely pretty much just concentrating on whether you won or lost. All right. That is valuable. That's valuable perspective because my next question is Utah, Washington, Oregon. At the Action Network, Colin Wilson loves Utah, feels like they are decidedly underrated. Oregon is getting a ton of love uh, from a lot of pundits, and it's number 11. Uh, You recognize them as a trendy pick in your podcast. But you also warned we're underselling Washington. This is a great question from Matt Mitchell, super producer Matt Mitchell of the podcast. Does Ralph Russo think the number 13 Huskies repeat as champs? I, you know what? I have to write my predictions column today, tonight, tonight and tomorrow. So, and I'm definitely leaning towards picking Washington. I, I you know, I, I have a, a something I sort of a, a trope that I sort of fall back on in college football, and that is, you sort of all you, you you will be what you are, right? You will always be what you are, and I, I think once you've established a program and you have some stability in that program, there is almost nothing better than that. It's one of the reasons why Utah has been such a good a good program over the years because they really sort of know what they are. And my feeling is, you know, Utah is a little different because we haven't seen Utah be this good in a while, at least coming to the season with this much expectation. So they're 
kind of different. And Oregon, obviously, is trendy and has a superstar quarterback. So it's kind of fun to jump on the Oregon bandwagon. And I think Washington is just Washington right now. They got Chris Peterson. They've got a program that's been well established over the last few years. They've got a nice pipeline of, hey, we lose this four star, but we replace them with this four star. We just lost a bunch of guys to the NFL, but we have good replacements lined up. Um, and I think it's sort of the power of the program and the power of stability that would lead me to having Washington maybe being a little undervalued, so to speak, especially maybe compared to Oregon and, and have me probably pointing toward them as the Pac-12 champion. I will say this. It would be nice if I have seen, if I had seen Jacob Eason play in the last two years. The one thing that gives me some pause is, what has his development? This is a guy who has been with a five-star, you know, prospect coming out of high school, transferred from Georgia. It has literally been almost two years since he's played in a college football game. You know, if he is, he turns into be, you know, a five-star player, not just a five-star prospect, but a five-star player. That could conceivably vault Washington up. If he is less than that, or you know, depending on how much less than that, I think it could sort of drag Washington down. So the, the uncertainty of what Jacob Eason is is the one thing that sort of worries me about Washington. All right, so <clears throat> you kind of walked away from Utah there for a second. Well, I, I, you know, again, you are what you are, right? If you kind of go with that premise that you, what you are, or let me should say, you are what you always have been. So when was the last time Utah was a top 10 team? Well, it's been, you got to go back to when they were playing in the Mountain West and there was a couple of good years with Urban when they were, you know, Kyle Winningham first took over there. In their history in the Pac-12 suggests that they will be a tough and physical team, but they are not really recruiting on a level that some of these other teams are. They're not bringing in lots of four and five star players. Um, and ultimately, you know, if you're not doing that, it's a lot harder to be really, really good. It's, it, you, you can be good if you're a developmental program, but to sort of push into that next echelon where you go from good to a playoff contender to a team that can maybe, you know, possibly sort of make an argument for a national championship, like, Utah doesn't really recruit at that level. So that's the one thing that sort of holds me back on Utah. Like, I think they're the best team in the South. I would be surprised if they didn't play in the, in, the, in the conference championship game. And if you get to the conference championship game, well, you're in pretty good shape to win the, the, the conference title. But I, I see these sort of ambitious projections of Utah and possibly making the playoff and going undefeated. And that seems a bit much for a team that recruits at that level. And I'm not sure we'll have sort of the depth of players and game breakers that the really elite teams have. I disagree. Utah's the best okay. bet at 10 to 1 to win the Pac 12. But here's another area where you found disagreement with someone on Twitter. Greg McElroy claimed that the SEC East could now be better than the SEC West, which is hog wash. All respect to Greg right. McElroy. But you agree with me. Tell me why you oh, dismiss I his argument. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Listen, I know the record last year was the East beat the West. The overall interdivision inter record last year, the East came out on top. Kentucky had, you know, a generational team last year. Kentucky is not going to be that team this year. I think Mark Stevens has done a nice job. I don't expect them a huge fallback, but they're not going to have the best defensive player in the country in Josh Allen. 
So Kentucky probably regresses a little bit. Missouri could certainly regress. The Missouri schedule sets up really nice for them to have a pretty good year. They just don't have a lot of challenges in their crossovers. I believe it's Arkansas and Ole Miss are their crossovers. So you're getting literally the two worst teams in the West. Um, but you're losing an NFL quarterback, and Kelly Bryant's a nice player, but he's not going to be a number one draft pick or a number, you know, a second round draft pick like Drew Locke was. Um, so I assume a little, possibly a little regression out of Missouri. Regression in a sense that I don't think they will be as good, though the record could conceivably be better because the schedule is a little more accommodating. Um, I don't think Tennessee is quite ready to really spread its wings and fly under Jeremy Pruitt, though I could see them being better this year. I think Florida might be a little bit of a step back year, frankly. I, they don't look like the number eight team in the country to me, but as I, as I said on other you know, conversations about the poll, I feel like once you get past number five, it should go from five to 12. <laughs> like all those teams between six and 11 seem like, well, is that team really that good? Like, should Michigan really be seven? Should Florida really be eight? But somebody has to be there because you can't skip from six. To, you can't skip from five to 12. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying I feel like there's going to be a little regression in the East, and I don't see a whole lot of regression in the West. I feel like the West, if anything, LSU, you know, Texas A&M is probably getting better in the West, um, and everybody, all the other powers seem to be pretty stable. Ralph D. Russo, you nailed this. <laughs> AP college football writer extraordinaire, arbiter of all things. AP Top 25, the lightning rod of college football, the AP Top 25 college football podcast at Ralph D. Russo AP on Twitter. Good follow, good listen, good work. Thanks, man. Appreciate the time. Talk to you. All right, I want to thank Scooch for coming on his podcast. I want to thank Ralph Russo from the AP Top 25 football podcast. That was a great conversation. He is super smart. This has been The Favorites. Download it. Rate it. Subscribe. Review it. Listen to it on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, slash The Action Network, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, love you.